So tomorrow is Labor Day. And in addition to being a three-day weekend, I know not everyone uh, will have a three-day weekend, but for those who do, in addition to that, it's important to be mindful that Labor Day is about more than a last stretch of time off at the symbolic end of summer. The first Monday in September is, often, is also an invitation to remember and celebrate the labor, the labor movement's role in securing workers' rights in this country. In the late 19th century, an increasing number of states officially recognized Labor Day as a holiday culminating in Congress declaring Labor Day a federal holiday in 1894. And it can be easy to forget for some of us just how much we owe the labor movement, you know, the structure of our days, the structure of our weeks and months and years. As one bumper sticker says, support unions from the folks who brought you the weekend right? The weekend is not just, we can take it for granted, but it is actually a social construction. It is not the way things always were, nor the way things always will necessarily be. If we had more room on that bumper sticker or than a bumper sticker allows, we could add support unions from the folks who brought you not only weekends, but also child labor laws, overtime pay, minimum wage, injury protection, workers' compensation insurance, pension security, sick leave, safer worker conditions, and more. Historically, many people used to spend 12 or more hours a day working for six or seven days a week. But in the early 19th century and continuing for over 100 years, there was actually this downward trend of our hours working per week gradually decreasing. Cut in half, according to most accounts. The labor movement pushed back against the exploitation of workers. But here's another oft-forgotten twist. In the late 19th century, extrapolating from the successes of the labor movement up until that time, you can, you can read, go back and read, many of the best economists at the time regularly predicted that well before the end of the 20th century, a golden age of leisure would arrive when no one would have to work more than two hours a day. Now, we're about... 22 years after the end of the 20th century, right? That, that's not what happened, right? The idea was that those forced to earn a living through what Marx called alienated labor, right? Not labor you enjoy doing, but alienated labor. Were, uh, would only have to work two hours a day of something like 10 hours a week. That would mean having time to pursue the American dream, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, of flourishing. Instead of returning home from work too exhausted to do anything but rest briefly before dragging oneself back out to work the next day. Has anyone ever felt like that? Like you just barely laid down, right? Yeah, I see some hands. I see some nods. Uh, labor activists help secure a five-day work week, and in some industries, even a six-hour workday. But starting with the Great Depression in the 1930s, we see that trend of shortening work hours, which had been happening for a century, it started going back the other direction. A new emphasis arose on, we've got to grow the economy by perpetually increasing consumer demand. As a result, many of us find, uh, find ourselves working increasingly long hours with less free time, though, to enjoy the fruits of those increased labors. 
And the ubiquity of technology in recent years, especially smartphones, has exacerbated this dynamic such that many of us have access to work and work access to us 24-7, 365, world without end. Amen. In the midst of this trend toward nonstop work, the pandemic has accelerated discontent among many people who find themselves in jobs labeled essential workers, but who are not treated with essential dignity in salary and benefits. And we're witnessing some hopeful resurgences in the labor rights movement as a result. To quote a Washington Post labor reporter, union activity in the U.S. is skyrocketing. As of May of this year, so only five months into the calendar year, petitions for union elections had already surpassed all of the previous year. Similarly, from sec former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich, unions have won 641 elections so far this year, the most in nearly 20 years. The first ever unionized Trader Joe's, the first ever unionized Chipotle, the first unionized Amazon facility, 230 unionized Starbucks stores. He writes, this is what the beginnings of a labor uprising look like. Each of these trailblazing firsts also serve as models for others to emulate. On this Labor Day weekend, I'm also holding in my heart the news that the author and activist Barbara Ehrenreich died. Uh, she died on Thursday from a stroke at the age of 81. She was, as many of you know, an award-winning columnist. She published 21 books, but she was um, best known for her 2001 memoir, Nickel and Dimed, on not getting by in America. How many of you read that memoir, Nickel and Dimed? All right, I see quite a few hands. It was based on a three-month experiment of her trying to survive working minimum wage jobs. As a waitress in Florida, she found that it absolutely took two jobs to make ends meet. After repeating her journalistic experiment in other places as a hotel housekeeper, as a cleaning lady, as a nursing uh, home aide, as a Walmart associate, she still found it nearly impossible to subsist on $7 an hour, which was minimum wage at the time. She said, every job takes skill and intelligence and should be paid accordingly. Her book helped raise awareness that the minimum wage must be a living wage, a wage you can actually live a dignified life on if we're ever going to uh, live as a society into what our first principle calls the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Now, I've preached a few previous Labor Day weekend sermons on revitalizing the labor movement. If you're interested in those, they're in our online sermon archive. And I'm going to loop back to that a point at the end of this sermon. But I'd also like us to not forget along the lines of that parable of the fishermen and the businessmen that uh, Danielle told earlier, that I want us to not forget to savor the fruit of what the labor movement has already achieved. From the people who brought you the weekend, what are we and aren't we doing to savor the freedom that the labor movement has already helped demand for workers? Indeed, as I was about to sit down, as, as I was about to sit down to put the finishing touches on this sermon yesterday, I heard the following on NPR's Talk the Nation. Some of you may have heard it as well. It said, priests, ministers, rabbis, and imams are generally driven by a sense of duty to answer calls for help and do the best they can to serve others. I don't actually have what is sometimes called alienated labor. I really enjoy 
what I do, as do uh, many of you are in vocations where that's the case. But recent research shows that in many cases, clergy rarely find time for themselves, and as a result, uh, end up suffering from higher rates of depression, obesity, higher blood pressure, and many clergy members simply burn out, and the story continued from there. Now let me be clear, I'm not asking you to take care of me. That's not the takeaway from me sharing this NPR story. Uh, although important happenings here at UUCF, um, just to be frank, interrupted my vacation many more times than I would like this summer, that's true. I'm also significantly less tired than I was in mid-June, and I've cut back on a number of recurring commitments starting this fall as I work toward you know, a sustainable schedule. I'm trying to go from like 135% busy to more like you know, 85 to 100% busy, I'm working on it. It's a struggle. I know many of you uh, feel that struggle. Even in retirement, right? I hear from many of you who are retired and be like, I'm still struggling with this, right? With all that I want to do, balanced against time and energy. The larger point, again, is very much that it's not just clergy who is a, pro a profession who are being impacted by what some are calling the great resignation. In general, for many professions, from healthcare workers to teachers to restaurant workers and so many more, the pandemic has made everything that was already hard, it's made it twice as hard and half as enjoyable. So to the extent that we, uh, so to the extent that we can, what might we do differently to make the most of the gifts that the people who brought us the weekend offer us? Along those lines, I want to share with you just two quotes that have been real touchstones for me over the years in discerning what is mine to do, what isn't mine to do, and likewise, what is yours to do, what isn't yours to do. The first quote is from the Trappist monk Thomas Merton, who is both a contemplative, cloistered in a monastery, as well as an activist, uh, frequently corresponding with folks on the front lines of social justice. And out of that tension, he wrote a book that some of you may have read called Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. He wrote a passage that may be particularly provocative for us Unitarian Universalists and other social progressives committed to building a better world with peace and liberty and justice, not merely for some, but for all. How do we get to that world without burning out? Uh, we want to help with all the 10,000 needs of the world, yet we are finite in our time, limited in our resources. So in regard to this tension, Merton writes, there is a pervasive form of modern violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs. A pervasive form of modern violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs. Activism and overwork. He's saying that's the, the violence. That's a strong word that we're drawn to, activism and overwork. He says the rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form of such innate violence, the rush and pressure of modern life. Do any of you feel that? This constant rush, pressure. To allow oneself, he says, to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, he says, that actually is to submit to violence. You're doing violence to yourself. He concludes, the frenzy of the activist ironically neutralizes their work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which could make that work fruitful. So doing activism in too frenzied a way, ironically, kills the root of inner wisdom. 
So as we discern how to build the better world we dream about, how to turn our dreams into deeds, Merton cautions us that our admirable commitments to social justice can actually become disordered. As so many of us are learning through the work of anti-racism, anti-oppression, and multiculturalism, intentions do not equal impact. Despite our best intentions, we don't always have the impact and the results we aspire to. And Merton warns us again that activism that is too frenzied and relentless without breaks to reflect and reorient and recharge can ironically cause us to be less effective. That's really worth reflecting on in regard to giving yourself permission to make the most of the gift we have received from the people who brought you the weekend. The second quote that may serve us as we seek to discern what is and isn't ours to do is from a book titled Listening Hearts. How do we listen with our hearts? The subtitle is Discerning Call in Community. I'll share with you just one paragraph. Even when a need exists, even when a need exists and we are well qualified to meet it, does not necessarily mean we are called to respond to it. Something may seem logical for us to do, but even that does not mean we are called to do it. Simply because a task or understanding is good to do does not mean that we are called to do it, or if we are doing it, that we need to continue doing it. And they conclude, to be doing good can be the greatest obstacle to doing something even better. To be doing good can be the greatest obstacle to doing something even better. A basic foundational part of skillful discernment is certainly discerning good from bad, right? That, that's a, and some of our world leaders seem troubled with that, but that's, that is a basic step of discernment, right? Learning good over evil. But what about the much more subtle distinction between good and better and best? Not good and evil, but good and better and best. That's what this is about, discerning the best right action. None of us can do everything we like. So how do we choose in each moment what is authentically mine to do and yours to do and ours to do over so many worthy priorities? What are we called to do? What are we called not to do? If we were to give a full-throated, fully embodied, fully committed yes to where we are actually called, we must also be willing to say, a gentle, compassionate no where we are not called, if we are to avoid spreading ourselves too thin or getting hooked into what Merton calls the violence of overwork. So with the summer's end upon us, where are you and where are we between that tension between service to others in the world and self-care? Do you know in your heart, in your mind, in your body, in your spirit, that you need to slow down, that you need to do some contemplating and recharging? Or are you feeling a call, a lure to charge ahead? The midterms are coming. I'm feeling good. Let's do this. Si se puede. Like, what, what are you feeling? What is the next right action for you and for us to take at the intersection of wisdom, compassion, and discernment? How are we each called to answer the call of love? A call which includes not only love and care for all sentient beings on this planet and the planet itself, but also love and care for ourselves, for our bodies, for our emotions, for our spirits. Carrie Newcomer, the singer-songwriter, once said, I've been traveling faster than my soul can go. Maybe some of you have felt that. 
So as you ponder these questions and reflect on how are we called to support one another and ourselves in la lucha, in the struggle, in a few moments we'll be invited to sing Solidarity Forever, perhaps the labor movement's most famous anthem. Before we sing, let me give, just, give you just a little background about the significant connection between this song and UU history. The original lyrics to Solidarity Forever were written in 1915 and set to the tune of John Brown's Body, a marching song written decades earlier by Union soldiers uh, during the Civil War. It was about the radical abolitionist John Brown. Some of you may recall that the Secret Six who helped fund and supply John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry just 20 minutes down the road from here, right? The Secret Six who funded that raid on the Federal Armor at Harper's Ferry, of that Secret Six, five were Unitarians and two were Unitarian ministers. Among those five Unitarians was Samuel Howe. He was the husband of another of our Unitarian ancestors, Julia Ward Howe, who awoke in the middle of the night while visiting Civil War camps and hospitals and was inspired to write new lyrics to that tune, John Brown's Body, verses that became the Battle Hymn of the Republic. When the Civil War began, it was far from clear in the North whether the fight was only to preserve the Union or also to end slavery. Julia's Battle Hymn of the Republic, written in uh, November of 1861, more than a year before Lincoln's uh, Emancipation Proclamation, uh, Julia's lyrics helped catalyze popular uh, support for the Civil War ending enslavement once and for all. So as we prepare to sing this labor anthem, I invite you to remember those historical echoes, the connections of the music of this song to John Brown's body and to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Note as well that verse 4, when we get to that, is the women of the Union. If you identify as female, you're invited to sing on that verse. If you don't, hang back on that one. As we prepare to sing, I'll leave you with one final quote from the Reverend Dr. Susan Frederick Gray, who is the president of our Unitarian Universalist Association. She had a recent press release titled, Unitarian Universalists Honor Workers' Dignity and Support the Labor Rights Movement. It resonates deeply with um, Barbara Ehrenreich's quote, the uh, point that we explored earlier, that the minimum wage must be a living wage, that you can uh, work one full-time job and earn enough to live a dignified life. Uh, President Gray writes, poverty is a policy choice. We can just stop there, right? Poverty, it is a policy choice. Budgets are moral documents, right? Together, we can pass legislation that honors workers' dignity, values labor, and holds the quality of every life to be sacred. An economic system that produces record profits during the COVID-19 pandemic while plunging millions more into poverty, that is immoral. It is a choice, and we don't have to continue making that choice. 64% of people in the United States live paycheck to paycheck. Working-class Americans pay a higher tax rate than billionaires, are hit hardest when rising gas prices make given, getting to the work difficult or impossible. I would add that billionaires are a policy choice and, and a failure of our society that any billionaires exist, but that's a, maybe a separate conversation. I'll get into that more in November, actually. I want to share with you a sermon on uh, Thomas Piketty's uh, latest work. As people of faith and conscience, we rejoice in recent historic wins for workers at Starbucks and Amazon facilities. This is the righteous work of people joining together across differences to demand dignity, safety, and justice. 
The basic right and ability to live, to be housed, to have access to health care and be active members of thriving communities, that should not be an exclusive reward for labor. It is perverse that health care is connected to employment. Our value and dignity is not calculated by the hours we toll. It is our birthright as human beings. To all who believe in justice and democracy in our government, our communities, in our workplaces, we must join together in solidarity. Let's rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together. Solidarity forever. It's on the insert to your order of service.